Good morning, Living Water. Happy Palm Sunday. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. If you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word, we'll pick up at verse 28 and work our way to verse 40. Luke 19, 28 through 40. Verse 28, and when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. But when he knew, drew, drew near to Bethphage and Bethany and at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, so those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the coat. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray for our time together in the word. Would you bow with me for a few moments? Heavenly Father, through the name of Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for this day. Thank you for this church service that we're having. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is leading us. And thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for each one of us who found time to be here today. We ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds so that we can be able to comprehend what we are hearing from you this day. Thank you for your Holy Spirit ministering to us. Please forgive us and cleanse us from any sin and help me to clearly communicate what you want to say to your people. We thank you for your love and your care. We submit our request to you, believing in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So the Wednesday before last, after work, I decided to go to the gym. Uh, at the gym, I put my work clothes into my gym bag, and after working out, I made my way home. When I arrived at home, I opened the door. Uh, I believe I had gone by the grocery store and picked up some other items. I threw my gym bag by the entryway, by, by the stairs, and pulled my jacket out and left the gym bag open and then headed upstairs uh, to unload the things that I had in my hand, put my jacket away, uh, and get ready for the evening. Uh, I thought to myself, hey, you know what? I'll get the bag tomorrow. So I left it downstairs. The next morning came, Thursday had arrived, uh, and I was making my way down to get ready to head out for work. As I was going out the entry door, I noticed that the bag was still there open with my work clothes inside from the day before. And I thought to myself, I need to get to work. 
I'll get it when I come back in the evening. It was one of those 8 to 8.30 days. Uh, I got home from work. I was tired. I looked over and noticed the bag and said, well, I'm off tomorrow. <laughs> you know how this goes. I'll get it tomorrow. So I went upstairs. Friday arrived. And I was upstairs, got up, had breakfast with my family. After having breakfast, I cleaned up the kitchen so my wife could start doing stuff that she had to do for homeschooling. I went upstairs because I try to wash clothes on the weekend to get ready for the week. So I washed all my clothes on the weekend and everybody's clothes uh, hours and my kids wash theirs. And then we, you know, so we're ready to start the week and don't have to wash clothes during the week. And as I was putting on the first load, the doorbell rang. We had unexpected guests. Uh, it happened to be my daughter's mentor and her husband who were stopping by to see our pet rabbit. Uh, they had planned to come by earlier in the week uh, at an arranged time. However, uh, something came up last minute where they couldn't come by, and so they decided they were going to come by at another time that they had not announced. Uh, you can imagine that I felt a, a sense of sheer embarrassment as I remembered as I was putting on the clothes that my gym bag was still downstairs with my work clothes in it, and it was open. But there was nothing that could be done. I was still in my PJs. <laughs> so we had to let the moment pass. Now, I need to confess a little bit of sin here because the scripture tells us to confess our sins one to another. I, I, I at first felt a sense of frustration because I was like, why didn't my daughter pick up my gym bag before she opened the door? Right? Because what I really wanted to do was blame shift. It wasn't her fault. I had had time. I had procrastinated. I had put it off. And now I was reaping the consequences of me delaying to do what I should have done. Because I did not take the time, I was not prepared for their arrival. Now, probably maybe one or two of you in this room have, on a rare occasion, experienced something similar, something you should have taken care of, but you put it off and it came back to cause you regret later. Let me give you a few examples of, of maybe just to remind you of some things that maybe came up in your life. Maybe when you were younger or at one time or another, there was a test maybe in middle school that you knew you should have studied for and you didn't study for it. Maybe you put off renewing your... Uh, emission and inspection sticker and the police had to remind you of that. <laughs> Maybe you knew that the special day was coming up and even though you knew it was coming up, you didn't take time to plan for it, like for Christmas or put aside some money for an emergency. Maybe you put off or avoided the dentist or the doctor and when you got there, you realized you shouldn't have done that. Maybe there was in a relationship that when you had time to invest in it, you chose not to. And that came up later. Maybe there was a, a project at work that you didn't properly plan for. Or maybe you've had one of those days where you realized you should have checked the weather before you left the house. Like some people I know and some friends I've had over the years, maybe you're like those people who have enjoyed riding their car on empty and you did not make that needed stop at the gas station and you found out no gas, no go. Or maybe you put off a repair on a house appliance. Now, as all of us know in this room, the consequences of leaving something unaddressed varies based on the nature of the thing 
left undone. Leaving my gym bag in the doorway brought a small amount of shame on my family, but not having a will and something laid up for an untimely exit will bring a whole lot more than shame on my family. So for Palm Sunday, what I want to do today is simply remind you about something that you want to, don't want to leave undone because the consequences for you and for me are too great. So our Holy Week message series, as you see titled behind me, is called Fractured. Today, Good Friday uh, and Resurrection Sunday, we will look at one thing that Jesus did each day and see how people responded to that. Let me lay out the message for today that we're going to go over. I'm going to lay out one reality of what Jesus did, talk about some responses that people had to it, and then I'm going to give us some implications, and that will conclude our message for today. To introduce the one reality, we need to look back for a moment I want to take you back to a time in the history of Israel at the end of the period of the judges. Let me give you a few names that might draw this period of time to mind. Ruth, Samson, Eli, his sons Hophni and Phinehas, and Samuel. Near the end of Samuel's life, the people requested that they shift from the form of governance to a new form, they desired to have a king. But Samuel warned them against that. And here's the reply that came to Samuel. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we, may, we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And God granted their request. Many of you are familiar with some of the kings, Saul, David, Solomon, and the rest of David's heirs. And then there were all those kings who ruled in the north. But we know the story. It's a familiar story. The people were unfaithful to the covenant, and God exiled the people from the land, and the reign of the Davidic kings was broken. The nation lost its sovereignty and its independence, and it became subject to the world empires, except for a brief period under the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans when they gained some independence. But then came the iron grip of Rome. Rome conquered them, set up an occupying force, and implemented a heavy tax system. But the prophets, after the exile, held out hope that one day a Davidic heir would rise and restore the kingdom that they had once known under David and Solomon. One writer, which you've already heard, but I'll rehearse it again for you, was Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9, said this in verse 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a coat, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And we find out that the people were ready for deliverance. 
Enter Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. This Jesus, who had recently healed blind men in Jericho and not too long ago had raised Lazarus of Bethany, who had been four days dead, not to mention all the miraculous works that he had done in Galilee. This Jesus instructed two of his disciples to go ahead of him to the village nearby. Some think it was Bethphage to procure a coat, uh, the fold of a donkey. And as they arrived, they found things just as Jesus had told them. When they returned, they put their outer garments on the coat and sat Jesus on it. And Jesus rolled down the Mount of Olives into the city. And if we think about what Zechariah wrote, we understand what Jesus was intentionally doing. By entering Jerusalem in this way, Jesus was openly proclaiming himself as the king sent by God to deliver the people. Uh, It's an action that is reminiscent of how King David had uh, announced that Solomon would be the next ruler of Israel in 1 Kings 1.33. And this was the reality that the pilgrims who had journeyed for Passover, the citizens of Jerusalem, those who were parts of various religious groups and religious leaders were confronted with. Jesus is the rightful king of Israel. As we know from our study of Revelations, he is also the ruler of God's creation. And no one who was privy to what was going on missed the message that Jesus was communicating. Our text in Luke presents us with two groups who responded to Jesus's announcement. The way Luke breaks them out is the disciples and some Pharisees. Now, we've already seen in the text that the the two disciples have prepared for Jesus's arrival. But according to verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to praise God for all the mighty, uh, mighty works that they had witnessed Jesus do. Most likely referring back to their time in Galilee, along with Jericho and the raising of Lazarus. Now, this group is probably comprised of those faithful disciples, some of which we see make up the 120 in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, along with probably some other disciples who had associated themselves with Jesus because of the miracles, and they were kind of more loosely associated with Jesus. And then based on Luke 18, 36 and 19, 3, there also seems to be other people, not in Luke's text, but he does seem to draw upon that, that there was pilgrims who were traveling with Jesus and his disciples down from the region they were in for the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. Now, we in the text see what the disciples do. We, we notice their actions. They prepare for Jesus' arrival. They place Jesus on a donkey. They put their garments on the ground to prepare his red carpet rollout, and they praise God that Jesus has done all these mighty works for God that demonstrate that he is the rightful king. Now, the reason that they're rejoicing greatly is because they believe, as verse 11 notes in the text, as Luke notes it, that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. Jesus was ushering in the kingdom in its fullness at that moment. Professor Bach helps us understand this. He writes, This unique remark that Luke makes shows that Luke has a two-stage view of the kingdom. It arrives now, but comes in its fullness later. The full earthly kingdom to appear in Jerusalem, an idea in Judaism, 
is what the disciples always expected. We see them still expecting that after the, the resurrection of Jesus in Acts chapter 1. But we know that God had other plans for that moment in history. Jesus had come to Jerusalem to save Israel, but also others. But the war that he came to wage was not of the earthly kind. He, he did not come to defeat Rome, but spiritual enemies. He died to save us from sin so that we could have peace with God. John, one of his disciples, and reflecting on this now, understanding it better after understanding what had happened, said this about Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Or as the NET, the NIV, and the NLT translated, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the whole world. As king, he also came to fight our battles, but against foes that we do not have the ability to defeat. Later in that same week, Jesus would say this about what he was about to do. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is the king who saves us from the divine penalty for sin and from the power of Satan. He is the king who saves his people. But not everyone wanted to recognize him in that way. We notice in Luke's text that there are some who don't have the same view as the disciples. Not all of the Pharisees, but the text says some of the Pharisees, a religiously conservative group of Jews, rejected this claim about Jesus. Notice what they tell Jesus upon making this assertion about himself. They said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they wanted Jesus to restrict his disciples from claiming him to be the rightful king because they did not believe that that accurately fitted who he was. And this is the reason that they were not prepared for his arrival to welcome him as king. If you don't believe he's king, then why would you ever prepare for his arrival? Now, whereas the disciples had prepared and were praising him, the response of the Pharisees was pushback. He denied their request, and Jesus responded by telling them that if the people did not praise God for sending King Jesus, then the earth itself would bear witness, because creation would not stand for such an egregious oversight. How we view Jesus influences how we respond to him. Like the disciples, if we believe that Jesus is God's chosen king, God's son in the divine sense and not just the royal sense, then we will accept him, we will trust him, we will prepare for him, and we will praise him. However, if we view Jesus as some of those Pharisees did, merely simply as a teacher, we will not prepare for Jesus, and nor will we praise him. What might the implications be for us? Now, I realize that we do not live in first century Judea, but in 21st century America. And I guess most of you in this room would agree that a few things have changed in the last 20 centuries. Now, thankfully, Jesus has borne the weight of already applying this to us. And so I'm just going to simply share with you the way that Jesus applies this to our lives. So right before the triumphal entry in Luke's text, 
King Jesus tells a story that makes clear his expectations for those who would call themselves his servants. His servants. So let's hear the story together. Look back at your Bibles there. We're in still in chapter 19, but let's drop back to verse 12. And this is Jesus telling the story. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your miner has earned 10 minus more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your miner has made five minors. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your miner, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not did not put my money into the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by take the miner from him and give it to the one who has 10 minus. And they said to him Lord. He has 10 minus. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, Professor Bach does a wonderful job of pointing out the historical background on which this story seems to draw. The parable has this historical background because in 40 B.C. Herod and in 4 B.C. his son, one of his sons, Archelaus, went to Rome to receive ruling authority. They went to receive the office of being king over their region. But in the case of Archelaus, he, he was not a popular person. And so there was this public outcry that went to Rome not to grant him the position. And Rome responded by giving him a lesser position than king. And, and so the Lord seems to use this historical background to tell the story, but he reframes it around himself and with uh, Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14 in view in the background. Uh, let me retell the story. In the story, we see how a man of noble birth left to receive a kingdom, to become king, to receive that right to rule. But before he left, he entrusted to 10 of his servants an amount of money that would be equivalent to over three months wages of that day. And when he returned as king, he held a performance review first of his servants. But, but Jesus doesn't go through all ten servants. He only gives us three to look at. Two faithful servants who had different abilities, get different results, but they were viewed as faithful. Uh, and they have been focused while the master was gone on the master's interest. And because they were focused on the master's interest, they 
earn something for the master and they're rewarded with more responsibility based on their level of faithfulness. But Jesus shifts to put the main attention on this last servant who we would categorize or as he categorizes him as the unfaithful servant because this servant, unlike the other two, looks out for his own interests. And when the master comes, he has nothing to show for the master's interests. Because what's happening in the text, we realize that his view of the master is errant. And his actions prove that his heart is wrong toward the master. He did not trust the master or view the master as good. And so his words show and reveal his heart. The master views him as wicked and treats him that way. The citizens who outright reject the master's authority, well, they met with an unpleasant end. So like those at the first triumphal entry, we also await King Jesus to make his second triumphal entry. Jesus has gone to a far country and he's gone to receive a kingdom from the ancient of days, God the Father, and he will be returning. And when he does, he will call those in his community to account for what they've done and what business they have done for his interest while he is gone. And he will also deal with those who hate him. Now, like those in the first century, we will have to deal with the claim that Jesus made at his first triumphal entry, that he is king. If you believe that is true, then you will put your trust in him and then you will prepare for his arrival and praise him until he comes. And when he does come, you will be able to praise him all the more. Otherwise, you'll find yourself like the Pharisees pushing back against him. Now, the writer of Hebrews gives us a snapshot of this second triumphal entry when the writer of Hebrews says, and just as it is appointed for man once to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. While the king is away, we should prepare for his arrival and praise him until he comes. My advice to you is don't put off your preparation like I did with the gym bag because he might arrive at a time that you're not expecting. How do we prepare for Jesus's arrival? Some might say to you, work hard. Save up as much money as you can. Enjoy as much of life as financially possible. Make sure that you complete your bucket list and take every opportunity for for vacation as you are able. Do all that is in your power to achieve your dreams and to make sure you make a name for yourself so that people will remember you and when you're gone, they will say good things about you. Don't worry too much about sinning because you can always ask God for forgiveness later. Don't put a lot of energy into knowing and doing what Jesus wants done. Instead, focus on what you want, because what matters most in life are the concerns of this world. But seek to be close enough to Jesus so that when you die, you can go to heaven. Or you can follow the Bible's counsel. Matthew, Mark and Luke and John teach us to believe in Jesus, the son of God 
to give our allegiance to him above all others, to die to ourselves and to live as citizens of the kingdom of God now. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. To love God with all of our whole selves and to love our neighbor as ourselves. To look out for the marginalized in society. To persevere in prayer. To have a proper view of possessions and to make disciples of Jesus. Acts encourages us to spread the gospel of Jesus to the world. Romans reminds us to serve gods with our bodies by doing righteousness instead of sin. To use our gifts for the good of the church. To genuinely love others and to not retaliate against those who have done wrong against us. To submit to governmental authorities and to not pass judgment on disputable matters with other followers of Jesus. First and second Corinthians teach us to mature in our faith and to not live like the world. To honor and respect our spouses and marriage. To use our singleness to serve the Lord. To stay away from idolatry. To be willing to give up our rights for the good of others. To do all for the glory of God. To handle our spiritual gifts by living with love towards others. To have orderly worship. To be generous to the poor and other believers. To practice church discipline. To forgive those who repent. Galatians teaches us to live by faith and walk by the spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of our flesh, but display the fruit of the spirit to bear one another's burdens, to help those who are struggling with sin, to share our financial resources with church leaders. Ephesians directs us to not live like unbelievers, but to be forgiving and tenderhearted toward one another, to watch our speech, to work instead of stealing, to put off every sin that's in our lives and to relate well to our spouse and to our children, to be good employees and employers. Philippians teaches us to walk in humility, to pray and to watch our thinking. Colossians encourages us to put on the new self and put off the old self with its desires and to set our minds and affections on the things above where Christ is seated. To sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. To let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. To encourage one another with the word. word to be thankful and to have a home lives to reflect that we are disciples of Jesus. First and second Thessalonians inform us that we ought to live lives that please God by abstaining from sexual immorality, to live quiet lives, to work so that we are not idle. First and second Timothy and Titus teach us to select godly church leaders, to order the church properly, for church leaders to study and to preach the word, to watch out for false teachers, to pray for all people, especially government leaders, to care for widows, to teach sound doctrine, to not be lazy and be ready for every good works. Philemon reminds us to forgive those who have sinned against us and repent. Hebrews admonish us to remain faithful to Jesus through suffering, to gather as a church and to encourage one another to good works, to move beyond the elementary teachings of our faith, to keep our lives free from the love of money, to, to live by faith, to remember those in prison, to show hospitality to others, to obey and to submit to church leaders. James tells us to persevere in trials, to avoid partiality, to meet needs when we have the opportunity and to not just pray for people, to control our tongues, to watch out for worldliness, to not boast about the, the future, to be generous, patient in suffering and to pray for one another. First and second, Peter calls us to live holy lives, to submit to authority, to have orderly home lives, to be willing to suffer for righteousness, for pastors to care for church members, to avoid living like unbelievers, to use our spiritual gifts for others, to show hospitality without grumbling, to confirm our calling and election and make sure it's sure by growing in godly character, to watch out for false prophets and teachers and patiently wait on the Lord's arrivals. 
The letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John instruct us to walk in the light by confessing our sins, to live in the way that Jesus lived his life, to love one another by helping those in need, to not love this world, to watch out for Antichrist, to avoid making the practice of sinners, to believe in Jesus, to keep God's commandments, and to support missionaries. Jew calls us to persevere in the faith. And in the revelation, Christ commands us to stay faithful to him during times of suffering, to not compromise morally, not to tolerate doctrine that teaches us that sin is okay, and to continue to show love until he comes. That's what the New Testament teaches us. And there's more that I didn't even cover. Pastor Tony Evans reminds us, though, of an important point. Taking notes and memorizing verses is good. But until a learner also obeys the word of God, teaching has not produced a disciple. Now, someone might object to what I've just shared. They might say it's almost been 2000 years since Jesus left. And many generations like this generation has thought that Jesus was going to come during their lifetime and he did not show up. So why should I waste time preparing preparing for Jesus' arrival. Why don't I just wait to the end of my life, enjoy my life, and then at the end, I'll try to get things right, right before I die. Uh, Well, with each passing year, you're one year closer than you were before. But let me accept for a moment that what you say is true. That, hey, listen, you won't be alive when Jesus returns. Let's just accept that as true for the moment. There's this other reality that I've already brought up that none of us can seem to avoid. If Jesus doesn't come to meet you, then you will go to meet him. And I call on evidence all the cemeteries of the world. Let me conclude with a quote from Paul Tripp's book, A Quest for More, which one of our small groups is currently studying. In this, he shares this thought, but I I thought it was relevant to close with this thought. He says, sin kidnaps our concern and atrophies our care. Sin blinds us to the glory of God and leaves us deaf to his call. Tragically, sin leaves us all too willing to be satisfied with expending our gifts and energies on ourselves. Sin shrinks us from to each become a mini king, ruling our many kingdoms of one. And it reduces the human community to a society of kings colliding with each other's solitary kingdoms. The shrink-wrapped kingdom of self tends to have its eyes focused firmly on the present. It's about what I see, hear, think, and feel in the here and now. This kingdom isn't a kingdom of delayed gratification or persevering patience. It's an impatient kingdom that wants what it wants and wants it now. But the culture of the big kingdom is shaped by eyes that are firmly rooted in eternity. The culture of the big kingdom sees now as an investment for then. No, it's not evil to invest in a good car, to buy a good house, to enjoy a relaxing vacation, or to relish the pleasures of a succulent steak. Each of these things point in some way to the creative glory of God. But the issue here is what drives the system. It's all about what you're living for, what gives you meaning and purpose, what gets you up in the morning, what gives you identity, where you seek to find joy and what you seek to satisfy your heart and where you are looking to find life. See, the kingdom of self tends to have its focus on the joys, pleasure and pursuits of the here and now. But no one critiques this way of living more than C.S. Lewis 
in mere Christianity when he writes this. If you read history, you'll find that Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built the Middle Ages, the English who abolished the slave trade, and all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world they have, that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim for heaven and you will get earth. Aim at earth and you will get neither. King Jesus is on his way. He will not be riding a donkey again, but a white horse, the symbol of a conquering king. The question is, will you be prepared for his arrival? I say to you, don't leave the gym bag by the stairs. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus came humbly, riding on a donkey, proclaiming peace. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem and for the peace in our times. Make us instruments of your peace and guide us in the ministry of reconciliation. Work in us now both to will and to do what pleases you. Since we are weak, grant us your grace and heavenly blessing that in whatever way we work, that we may do it all for your glory and for your honor. Keep us from sin and empower us daily to do good works, that as long as we live in the body, we may always perform, perform service to you. Our hearts bring before you our loved ones who are in our minds, who have yet to come to acknowledge Jesus as King and his sacrifice on the cross for their sins and his resurrection from the dead. May they, Lord, because of your work in their lives, you drawing them to yourself, may they find peace as we have found peace in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the generosity of your people who have given and who are about to give now in a moment. We give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' holy name, amen.